from the initial market recommendation from yourselves and the choosing of the property right through to the leasing process with the property manager, everyone has been just totally professional and the communication is excellent, especially with being such a, a long distance away. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1408, 1408, as Rome is burning. <laughs> well, I don't well, maybe I do mean that a little bit. Anyway, uh, okay, listeners. So uh, the world is in a bit of a crisis mode. Certainly you have noticed. And um, we have a good guest today. This will be a two-part show or part one of a two-part show. Part two will be played tomorrow for you. My friend George Gammon is back. He has done quite a bit of research and quite a few interviews uh, with uh, experts on economic impact and the health impact of COVID-19. So we're going to talk about that today, and I think you will definitely want to hear everything that is said throughout this show and tomorrow's episode as well. A couple things, though. Um, number one, I'm going to be talking about uh, my projection, my uh, estimation of the impact on Airbnb. And I think you'll want to hear that. That'll be upcoming in a future episode. Very important stuff, given that we see the convention business collapsing all around the world. Cancellations galore. As you know, we've postponed our Meet the Masters conference. Our 22nd anniversary Meet the Masters was scheduled to be in early May, and we have postponed it. And hopefully we will have a date this summer for that event. Again, it's in limbo right now because nobody knows the impact of this thing. It is just too hard to tell. It's very hard to estimate. Uh, but as we see that happening, as we see airlines just uh, shutting down thousands of, of flights and we see the cruise ship business basically over for a little while here, um, you know, everything will ultimately return. But this is definitely a time of very difficult transition. And a lot of the supply chain is affected. A lot of businesses, a lot of industries affected. Very much a time to be paying attention to this. So I want you to remember something though. Okay. First off, the coronavirus is not a drill. Be careful what you are letting influence you on this. There's a lot of falsehoods spreading around social media, uh, making light of it like it's no big deal. And I think this is kind of a big deal. Okay. You'll hear more about that during this interview. Uh, but the other thing I want you to know is as we see financial markets struggling, as we see the oil market collapsing, huge impacts of all of this stuff, obviously. Just over 10 years ago, during the Great Recession, the worst economy in seven decades, a few things. Number one, 
So most people consider the day of the start of the Great Recession, the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed. So just keep this in mind. I've said it before, but not for a while now. So maybe you haven't heard me say this. The day before the Lehman collapse, you went to sleep and the world had a certain amount of assets. It had a certain amount of real estate. It had a certain amount of companies and businesses. It had a certain amount of gold, silver, platinum, palladium. It had a certain amount of oil. It had a certain amount of land. It had a certain amount of everything, right? Those assets were there and they were all quantifiable and everybody could count them. And then you woke up and that next day, you heard the news of Lehman Brothers collapsing when most people think the Great Recession, the worst economy in seven decades, began, okay? Now, after you heard that news and you looked around the world, guess what? There was the same amount of real estate, the same amount of gold, the same amount of platinum, palladium, silver, the same amount of oil in the ground or out of the ground. There was the same number of companies uh, almost. <laughs> there wasn't Lehman Brothers, and some other companies failed too, obviously. Uh, but generally speaking, right, the world had the same amount of assets before the Great Recession and after the Great Recession. The only difference was the fiat value, or to put it another way, the nominal value of those assets and, and who was the owner of those assets, right? Because when the Great Recession occurred, some of the ownership changed hands, right? And, you know, as is usual throughout history, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, okay? Sadly, that's the way it works. And the nominal value or the fiat value of those assets changed, right? In other words, nominal, the definition for that again is in name only. Nominal means in name only. And fiat means by authority. You know, everybody talks about fiat money, right? Well, it's by authority, right? It's by decree because there is a law, okay, the legal tender laws in the United States and other countries, they have, you know, different laws, but this concept remains that says the almighty U.S. dollar is good for all debts, public and private. If you don't believe me, pull one out of your wallet and read what it says. Valid for all debts, public and private, right? So the legal tender laws are the fiat authority that give the currency with, you know, no specific real value since 1971. They give it its value. It's the law, right? The law gives it its value. The fiat, the uh, authority of the law. And nominal in name only, right, means that, you know, the name the value name, right? In other words, if Lehman Brothers stock, and I have no idea what the number was, but if Lehman Brothers stock was worth $50 a share, right? And by the way, this doesn't matter if the company's public or private because they're still shareholders, okay? There's either one shareholder or there's a whole bunch of shareholders and they may have a private ownership or they may be public, doesn't matter, right? There's still a share value with every company. So maybe the shares were worth $50 each and there were, you know, a bazillion shares out, uh, outstanding. And then after it collapsed, the shares were worth zero. So that was the nominal 
value, right? The name of it, right? But all the basic assets in the world were still there. So I guess I'm saying this to say, look, don't panic. Life will go on, okay? Things will definitely happen. This is not a drill. This is a serious thing. There will be huge opportunities created out of it. Now, during the Great Recession, when I was talking to you, I was talking to you about the contrarian investors. I was talking about, you know, the way those investors were being opportunistic. You know, some might call that vulture capitalism. Uh, there will be opportunities. There are opportunities now because guess what? Maybe real estate prices haven't changed, but guess what got a lot cheaper? Money. Money got cheaper last week, and you know what? It's probably going to get a little cheaper again, okay? So that money is a huge asset. What I mean there, of course, is the mortgage money, right? I mean the mortgage money. So huge opportunities always created, and that's why you're listening to this show and following my work, because I have helped thousands and thousands and thousands of people make <laughs> I don't know how much money, but lots of it, okay? I hear about it all the time. Even, you know, back to my career in traditional real estate for 19 years before I spent the last 16 years in the investment side of the business. That's what I do, right? Everybody does a different thing. What I do is I help people make money and create wealth. That's my job. We're going to help you do that through this whole thing. So keep on listening. Listen to this show. Listen to tomorrow's show. Listen to all of them. Go back and listen to the back catalog. If you're new to our show, be sure to check out the Jason Hartman Quick Start podcast on any podcast platform. Just type in uh, Jason Hartman Quick Start and you'll get some of the more fundamental information there. Here you'll get more news information and strategic information as events unfold. Obviously, that's what we're doing today as well. And if you want to talk to one of our team members, our investment counselors, they'd be happy to help you do a portfolio makeover, position your portfolio to protect your wealth and grow your wealth uh, through these, uh, as the old Chinese saying goes, may you live in interesting times. And <laughs> these are definitely interesting times. So that's what we're here to help you with. And uh, you can reach us at 1-800-HARTMAN. That's 1-800-H-A-R-T-M-A-N. Or, of course, jasonhartman.com. Let's go to part one as we talk to George about what's going on in this crazy world. It's my pleasure to welcome my friend George Gammon back to the show. I asked him to come on today to talk about the impact of COVID-19, the cervasa sickness, maybe, <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> I know, it's not something to laugh about, right, George? But anyway, that'll help us from not getting demonetized. And we want to talk specifically about the concept, which is very rare as an economic malady. You know, I talk about the three economic maladies all the time, inflation, deflation, stagnation. But this one is, is kind of interesting and nuanced and rare and uh, very disconcerting too. Because since we've had the markets really recognize the impact of, of coronavirus, we are in a position where we are beginning to see a supply-demand shock 
and this is a rare malady. Uh, so I want to talk about that, but we're going to talk about a bunch of other things. I think we'll go on a lot of tangents today. For you who are only listening on audio, we will also put this on our YouTube channel because George is fantastic with the visuals, with the whiteboard, and we will be showing some of his whiteboard segments here in order to elaborate on what we're discussing. But hopefully it'll come across really well for you if you're just listening to the audio as well. George, welcome back. It's great to have you. Thanks. I appreciate you inviting me back on. It's always a pleasure to talk. Yeah, it sure is. And these are scary time. The markets finally, just about a week and a half ago, really started recognizing the impact of this very serious thing. And just to talk about it for a moment before we get into the economic impact, which is significant, and we're going to hopefully impart to our listeners some things that can really help them weather the storm. When it comes to the health impact, I think it's important because so many people are spreading really falsehoods on social media. You know, I look through my Facebook feed, I look through Twitter, and I'm seeing these people saying, you know, what's the big deal? The flu kills more people, blah, blah, blah. That is not true. This is different. There are very important nuances. And since you and I have both been doing a lot of research about it, I just thought I'd let you talk about that a little bit before we jump into the financial side. Sure. The big difference between the coronavirus, cervezas sickness, whatever you want to call it, and the, and the normal flu, first and foremost is the R naught value. So the R naught value is just a scientific way of saying how fast does it spread from one person to a group of people. If one person has the virus and the R naught value is four, like it is with the coronavirus then that one person is going to spread it to four people. Mm -hmm. so, and then it just grows exponentially from there. The flu is 1.28. So less so that, of an that issue. is a huge, huge difference right. when you get into the exponential growth curve and the math of it. Mm -hmm. And to get a virus to where it just self-extinguishes, you want that R-naught value at one or lower. You get it lower than one, and it's just going to fizzle out because that one person isn't passing it on to enough people in order for it to grow. So that's the first big difference. The second big difference is the serious complication rate. Mm -hmm. So you've got something that grows much, much faster, call it four times faster than the flu. But the amount of people that require a hospital bed are far greater. I've seen some studies and a lot of people that I have a lot of respect for say that that can be as high as 20 percent to zero. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you have something that takes three months, let's see, not even that, let's say it takes two months to mm -hmm. go from zero infections to a million infections in the United States and 20 percent of those people call it 200,000 need ICU beds. Well, we've only got 100,000 in the United States. Right. So even if the death rate is around 2 or 3%, which is still a lot higher than the flu. Sure. But it seems like, okay, this could be manageable. But that's if you've got full capacity in your hospital system. Right. If that's strained at all, mm -hmm. obviously that 3% is going to go up to 6%, 10%, who knows? And yeah. there's places in Italy 
and so it's this is not like a third world eastern oh it's not going to affect us type thing if you look at italy you see several stories of doctors and nurses saying that they're at 200 percent capacity right. and it's gotten to the point there where they have to make some very difficult choices mm -hmm. what i mean by that yep. is if you've got two people coming into the hospital one's 70 years old yeah, one's one 30. is 40, yeah. yeah 30 years old yeah. you're really going to have to decide okay we've only got one bed mm -hmm. Who do we send away and potentially let die yeah. and who do we treat? And that's what it's most unless we get a miracle, which yeah. obviously we're all praying for. Yeah. I mean, unless, Ber Berlin has some possible good news. Uh, Chris Martinson was talking about that. Uh, he's been on the show a few times before. There may be, you know, let's all hope for a miracle. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. If we see the numbers play out in the United States like they've played out in Italy and unfortunately, because the United States isn't taking this seriously, just going back to what you're saying on, with all your friends on Facebook or mm -hmm. or Twitter who just say, oh, it's just the flu. What's the big deal? Yeah. The, the flu kills 80,000 yeah. people a year and the coronavirus has only killed 100. Right. This is all just media hype. Yeah. Those people are going to get a rude awakening yeah. in about three or four weeks because, well, I'm not going to say it's going to happen, but unless we get that miracle, I think it's probably going to play out even worse in the United States than it has in other areas just because we're so nonchalant about it. Well, and not, not only that, you know, we're really, you know, America is the land of the, the, the land of the free and the land of the rugged individual, right? And Americans don't like being told what to do. You know, they look at it as government oppression. And, and you know, uh, China, I had my friend who lives in, in China just on the show as you know and the one thing you can say about a one-party country that's argue whether it's communist or not um that's debatable in some ways but it is efficient you know they can put the country on lockdown and people are going to listen okay yeah. uh there's only going to be a few outliers but in a country like the u.s where everybody's so like freedom is like entrenched in their soul they're just going to break the quarantine they're not going to listen if that ever happens right and the likelihood of the government doing it is going to be lower here so there are some times when all this you know freedom with this great it works against us right yeah th th there's a downside obviously as a big libertarian myself, I would say the upside's better. But in situations like this... By the way, I should mention, when George picked me up at the airport in Medellin a couple of weeks ago when I was there, he was wearing a Gadsden flag hat. <laughs> you know, so that's how libertarian George is, okay? <laughs> yeah, I go back and forth between that one and the hashtag and the Fed. <laughs> well, and well, and then you also have two Ayn Rand hats that I noticed in your house. Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> so exactly. yeah, George is a bit of a libertarian for sure. Go ahead. Yeah, but there is an advantage to that, like you're saying. Yeah. And I think when I mean nonchalant, what I more specifically, we're not testing, and like South Korea. They did a lot of testing. Singapore has done a ton of testing. And so you know that, hey, I've got the virus. Yeah. So I can self-quarantine because yeah. you know that your 80-year-old grandmother is much more susceptible. So you're not going to go over there yeah. for the yeah. Friday night party. Right. just makes a lot of sense. But if you're not testing, you can't do those things. And sure. going back to the math, 
that's what brings that R naught value mm -hmm. from four or six all the way down to one where it needs to be so this thing doesn't go exponential. It's just more linear. Okay, so that the other thing is this virus is tough. It lives outside of the body longer and it's more hardy than other and it's viruses. Airborne. And it's airborne. So, you know, they say you got to be six feet from a person to have a good chance of being protected. You've got to wear eye protection a mask and certainly don't touch don't shake hands it lives on fabric it lives on countertops it lives on doorknobs if you ever thought about becoming ocd this is the right time to become ocd okay yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, not that it's a joke but i was thinking yeah. just howard hughes was a little he, ahead of his time he was ahead of his time yeah this is, <laughs> this is this is the time to act like crazy old howard hughes yeah, yeah. um okay so we kind of covered the major health component let's jump into the economics sure. um markets have recognized this they are scared to death events are being canceled all over the world we postponed our meet the masters event by the way you were one of the speakers at that event i hope yeah. i hope when we finally do do the event you can you can still come and speak to our audience sure, for sure. event planners hotels Airlines, cruise ships obviously are really suffering, um, but there's a whole supply chain around the planet, and China is is sort of at the beginning of the supply chain for a lot yeah. of products, right? Uh, yeah. Let's talk. Go over this. Yeah, ninety-four percent of the Fortune one thousand companies have part or all of their supply chain coming from China. Yeah, and many in Wuhan. Yeah, that whole area. You got it. Yeah. You got it. So this is something that can potentially affect worldwide supply chains, meaning that you could have a supply shock. So if you go back through U.S. history, you look at oil embargo in the early 1970s, that was an example of a supply shock. Right. If you look at Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, where you go down to the, your local store and there's just nothing on the shelves, that's an example of a supply shock. What we're accustomed to in the United States is trying to battle demand shock. Mm -hmm. So we go through the great financial crisis or the global financial crisis and all of a sudden no one's spending money because no one can right. get credit. Their asset, their main asset, their house is collapsed in value. Right. So that's no one's out spending or buying things, but there's still plenty of things on the shelves. Right. So here's what's interesting about that, George, and you're probably going to allude to this if I don't say it, but we have, well, the central planners at the Federal Reserve and the government have tools to deal with that shock. They can stimulate, they can do more QE and just push money. They can flood the system with money and that'll cure some of that because people will just take the money and go spend it and then that's resolved but this is a rare dual shock that we're really we're not facing it yet but it's early we're going to experience the dual shock which is uh has some unique properties right i've never seen anything like this in u.s history if you go back to the major economic events i've never seen a supply and demand shock a huge one happened simultaneously. It's not saying that it's 100% guaranteed going to happen, but all the components are in place for it to play out within the next few months. So mm -hmm. why demand shock? Well, if everyone is staying in their house because they're afraid of getting sick, if the whole country's on lockdown, like in Italy, no one's going to these conventions, no one's flying, no one's going to Florida for their vacation, they're not out spending money. They, they, that's the last thing 
on their mind. Mm -hmm. So that's what creates this demand shock while at the same time, if you look at a, I had this really cool pictograph that I used in a video last week that showed the top 10 importers from China in the United States. So number one was Walmart. Uh, number two, I believe was Target. But you had Lowe's, Home Depot, all these big box stores that the majority of Americans go to at least once a week, mm -hmm. if not once a day. Right. They're getting the majority of their products from China. Okay, well, if China has been in lockdown mode and it takes 30 days to get those goods from China to the United States, there's going to be a big lag there. So we should expect to see supply shocks in the United States within the next month or two. And we've so certainly I already, if you want to know how that feels, you got a little taste of it already. And anybody who has gone to any Costco around the country has right. reported to me and sent me photos of how all the water is gone, all the paper products are gone. I'm not quite sure why the toilet paper thing specifically, but that's, I don't know, I guess that's the ultimate necessity item, that and water maybe. But, um, but you know, we've never seen those shelves empty. I, I went to several stores over the weekend, CVS, Walgreens. I could not find any hand sanitizer. None. Yeah. It was, and there were notes on the shelves, yellow notices that said, "We're out. Don't keep looking around the store. Don't ask our people for. We just don't have it." That and the the hand sanitizer, the wipes, the water, the paper products. You've seen that. Uh, my friend told me he was talking to one of the Costco employees, and they said rice and pasta or the other oh, things. Yeah. They said when bags of rice come in and they get pallets and pallets of the rice delivered to Costco, they're gone in an hour. It, everything's gone. Yeah. So in that same video, I kind of did this thought experiment on how that plays out. And if we see that come to fruition in the United States, I think you're going to have consumer prices on those items go through the roof. Mm -hmm. You could see them double, triple, quadruple in price, while at the same time, you see prices on higher end items completely collapse. Mm hmm. So you see car prices, as an example, completely yeah. collapse while at the same time price of rice quadruples. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Take us through a little of this video, if you would. Uh, you've got your whiteboard on the screen now. Uh, yeah. And for those of you listening on audio only, we'll elaborate on this so it'll make sense to you. Go ahead, George. Okay. So what I did in yesterday's video, which now has 60,000, 70,000 views, it was really popular is I went through how the corporate bond market and the credit markets are affected by this crash in oil, by the coronavirus, and by this, call it everything bubble, turning into an everything crash. And they all are connected. And I don't think most people realize this. And when it comes, especially when it comes to the corporate bond market, I think people are just whistling by the graveyard. And this is really the center of everything and everything that could go wrong if it gets really bad in the United States. So I kind of outlined what the corporate bond market is, how it works, and why it's so important. So okay. if you're looking at this whiteboard, you see this circle which is kind of indicating or representative of the market. And you see the line that's call it uh, separates the lower 15% from the upper 85%. So below that line 
is junk credit or high yield credit. That's corporate credit like a Tesla or an Uber. That would be considered high yield or junk because the credit ratings don't give it a triple B. That's the line in the sand between investment grade and junk. high yield. Okay, which yeah. is junk bonds. Yeah, so okay. that's okay. very important, that line in the sand. Okay. In the junk bond market, you've got about one trillion, a little over a trillion there. Just in the triple B, which is kind of the first step in the investment grade, you've got $4 trillion of corporate debt. So that would include companies like Ford, IBM, Heinz, AT&T, that have really loaded up on corporate debt to buy their own shares back over the past 10 years. Okay, so let's talk about that for a moment. So a lot of people have been saying that the reason the stock market or, you know, one of the reasons the stock market has just been setting, you know, records, and it's just been incredible is the share buybacks. Right. And so companies like AT&T, Ford, Heinz, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, there's a whole bunch more, of course, have been borrowing, they've been doing bonds, right, to to buy their shares back. And those bonds, which might have been triple a are now triple b and yes. as you go down that ladder the next step down is high yield or junk bond status that's correct okay. and the, the big reason that's important to understand because the pension funds have been supplying the majority of this liquidity or cash to the corporate bond market so taking it even a step further back why they've been doing that because the fed dropped interest rates to zero for so long and these pension funds have to have a 7% return to meet their liabilities. So if you can typically go into a 10-year treasury and get 5 or 6%, well it's not going to be that hard for that pension fund to meet their obligations. If you can only get 1 or 2% on a 10-year treasury, now you've got real big problems. So the pension fund managers said, well, what do we do? Let's go somewhere where we can get a little bit more yield. Let's go into the corporate bond market. So I want to be clear that that was a result of the Fed policy. It was an unintended consequence of what the Fed did. So the pension funds take all this cash, go into the corporate bond market. The corporations, to your point, take that money. What do they do with it? They just buy their own shares back because it's just this financial engineering where the CEOs can pay themselves more. It looks like their earnings per share goes up, but all they're doing is just borrowing to buy something that gives them a sugar rush, mm -hmm. and at some point in time, they've got to pay the fiddler. If their cash flows stay consistent, like with AT&T, then, okay, they might be able to service that debt. Not a big deal. And what most of the bulls point out is that, well, the cost of servicing that debt is extremely low right now because of this low interest rate environment. But what they're not saying is that it's that debt rolls over. And a lot of these corporations have to roll it over every two years, every five years. And then they're assuming that their cash flows stay consistent. Well, like you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, that in a recession, or in a depression, the cash flows of these companies plummet. Mm -hmm. So if you have a situation where the cash flows are plummeting and the stock market 
is going down. So that's creating this situation where a lot of their debt, meaning those corporations, is getting downgraded into junk, which means the interest rate on that debt goes through the roof. Like, so, like what, what does through the roof mean? How, what's the differential there? I, I mean, of course, it varies by company and such, yeah. but give us an idea. Well, if this plays out, I think it could double easily. So the debt load or, or the cost of servicing the debt doubles for these companies. Yeah, I mean, let's just look at it like a mortgage. I think okay. that's the easiest way to, mm -hmm. to describe it. So you're an, a real estate investor and you take out you're, – you're buying a $100,000 home and you're taking out a mortgage. Let's say your interest rate is 4%. And your monthly payment is X, and after you do all the math, you're $200 cash flow positive. And as your listeners, because they're smart, they take out fixed rate debt, so they don't have to worry about these things. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> but, but the corporate bond market isn't 30-year fixed rate debt. It, it rolls over. The, 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 so, the, the big companies don't have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac subsidizing their no, loans. Yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. So when that debt rolls over... If it's now, call it 8%, you can imagine what that would do to that positive cash flow that you had in that rental property. Now, all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you're probably cash flow negative. Yeah, right. And that's just in a, that's a microcosm of what's going on in the corporate bond market. In addition to that, taking it back to the real estate example, the corporation's cash flow gets slashed. So imagine having a rental property where your interest rate on your mortgage doubles, but your rent goes from $1,000 a month to $400 a month. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and that's the situation. And then you take it a step further, and the entire real estate market has been built on real estate investors in buying more real estate properties. Right. Yep. And what you're doing is you're just making the comparison with the stock market and and, and the large companies that yeah, have this debt problem. I'm not saying that's problem. happening. I'm just yeah. using that as an example that most of your listeners can Great. easily understand right. yeah. because they're real estate investors. So if the entire real estate market has been propped up by real estate investors going in and buying these properties because they're cash flow positive. If all those buyers go away, right. then the real estate market drops, so, plus the cash flows drop, plus the cost of servicing the debt goes up. Right. It, you just have this. And wait a second, though. Before coronavirus, everybody was talking about the everything bubble, okay? And certainly about the stock market bubble specifically. We have out-of-whack valuations before any of this started, right, with P.E. ratios in the stratosphere, price-to-earnings ratios, where the stock market is like a cyclical real estate market. It's like buying in, in areas that we would never recommend, like, you know, expensive West Coast of the United States markets or expensive Northeastern markets or Miami. You know, these markets just they were too expensive to begin with. They had completely out of whack price to earnings ratios, or in real estate, we use rent to value ratios. Right. Uh, same idea. And so now you add to it this situation with their financing getting a lot more expensive. And these companies are in trouble. They absolutely are. But it's not just these companies that are in trouble because there's a direct correlation 
between those companies and the overall stock market. And unfortunately, our economy has been so financialized mm -hmm. yeah. over the past 20 years that now it's the tail wagging the dog. Sure. Where the stock market should be a mm -hmm. reflection of the economy. Now it's not. It has nothing to do with the economy. But the economy is completely reliant upon the stock market because of demographics, because of the baby boomers having their 401k. They're going to be taking that out. It's all about consumer spending. It's all about confidence. I've been saying this on Twitter and my videos a lot lately that this whole system is built on confidence. And if that confidence goes, the whole house of cards comes crashing down. Yeah, I mean, the main thing to understand yeah. with this is is the line, the 15% the and below is junk debt. The 85% above that line currently is investment grade debt. And the pension funds can only invest in investment grade debt. That's the key takeaway from this picture. In other words, they're restricted, most of them, not That's all right. of them, but most of them, right? That's right. Yeah, right. And not to mention, we've profiled it on the show many times, but there's a huge pension problem around the world, you know, not just in the US. Uh, but yeah, okay, go ahead. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.